Chapter Twenty of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty England under Henry the Fourth, called Bullingbroke. During the last reign, the preaching of Wycliffe against the pride and cunning of the Pope and all his men had made a great noise in England. Whether the new king wished to be in favour with the priests, or whether he hoped, by pretending to be very religious, to cheat heaven itself into the belief that he was not a usurper, I don't know. Both suppositions are likely enough. It is certain that he began his reign by making a strong show against the followers of Wycliffe, who were called Lollards, or heretics, although his father, John of Gaunt, had been of that way of thinking, as he himself had been more than suspected of being. It is no less certain that he first established in England the detestable and atrocious custom, brought from abroad, of burning those people as a punishment for their opinions. It was the importation into England of one of the practices of what was called the Holy Inquisition, which was the most unholy and the most infamous tribunal that ever disgraced mankind, and made men more like demons than followers of our Saviour. No real right to the crown, as you know, was in this king. Edward Mortimer, the young Earl of March, who was only eight or nine years old, and who was descended from the Duke of Clarence, the elder brother of Henry's father, was, by succession, the real heir to the throne. However, the king got his son declared Prince of Wales, and, obtaining possession of the young Earl of March and his little brother, kept them in confinement, but not severely, in Windsor Castle. He then required the Parliament to decide what was to be done with the deposed king, who was quiet enough, and who only said that he hoped his cousin Henry would be a good lord to him. The Parliament replied that they would recommend his being kept in some secret place, where the people could not resort, and where his friends could not be admitted to see him. Henry accordingly passed this sentence upon him, and it now began to be pretty clear to the nation that Richard the Second would not live very long. It was a noisy Parliament, as it was an unprincipled one, and the lords quarrelled so violently among themselves as to which of them had been loyal and which disloyal, and which consistent and which inconsistent, that forty gauntlets are said to have been thrown upon the floor at one time as challenges to as many battles, the truth being that they were all false and base together, and had been at one time with the old king, and at another time with the new one, and seldom true for any length of time to any one. They soon began to plot again. A conspiracy was formed to invite the king to a tournament at Oxford, and then to take him by surprise and kill him. This murderous enterprise, which was agreed upon at secret meetings in the house of the abbot of Westminster, was betrayed by the Earl of Rutland, one of the conspirators. The king, instead of going to the tournament or staying at Windsor, where the conspirators suddenly went on finding themselves discovered, with the hope of seizing him, retired to London, 
proclaimed them all traitors, and advanced upon them with a great force. They retired into the west of England, proclaiming Richard king, but the people rose against them, and they were all slain. Their treason hastened the end of the deposed monarch. Whether he was killed by hired assassins, or whether he was starved to death, or whether he refused food on hearing of his brothers being killed, who were in that plot, is very doubtful. He met his death somehow, and his body was publicly shown at St. Paul's Cathedral, with only the lower part of the face uncovered. I can scarcely doubt that he was killed by the King's orders. The French wife of the miserable Richard was now only ten years old, and, when her father, Charles of France, heard of her misfortunes, and of her lonely condition in England, he went mad, as he had several times done before, during the last five or six years. The French Dukes of Burgundy and Bourbon took up the poor girl's cause, without caring much about it, but on the chance of getting something out of England. The people of Bordeaux, who had a sort of superstitious attachment to the memory of Richard, because he was born there, swore by the Lord that he had been the best man in all his kingdom, which was going rather far, and promised to do great things against the English. Nevertheless, when they came to consider that they, and the whole people of France, were ruined by their own nobles, and that the English rule was much the better of the two, they cooled down again, and the two dukes, although they were very great men, could do nothing without them. Then began negotiations, between France and England, for the sending home to Paris of the poor little queen, with all her jewels, and her fortune of two hundred thousand francs in gold. The king was quite willing to restore the young lady, and even the jewels, but he said he really could not part with the money. So, at last, she was safely deposited at Paris, without her fortune. And then the Duke of Burgundy, who was cousin to the French king, began to quarrel with the Duke of Orleans, who was brother to the French king, about the whole matter, and those two dukes made France even more wretched than ever. As the idea of conquering Scotland was still popular at home, the king marched to the River Tyne, and demanded homage of the king of that country. This being refused, he advanced to Edinburgh, but did little there, for, his army being in want of provisions, and the Scotch being very careful to hold him in check without giving battle, he was obliged to retire. It is to his immortal honour that in this sally he burnt no villages, and slaughtered no people, but was particularly careful that his army should be merciful and harmless. It was a great example in those ruthless times. A war among the border people of England and Scotland went on for twelve months, and then the Earl of Northumberland, the nobleman who had helped Henry to the crown, began to rebel against him, probably because nothing that Henry could do for him would satisfy his extravagant expectations. There was a certain Welsh gentleman, named Owen Glendower, who had been a student in one of the inns of court, and had afterwards been in the service of the late king, whose Welsh property was taken from him by a powerful lord related to the present king who was his neighbour. Appealing for redress and getting none, he took up arms, was made an outlaw, and declared himself sovereign of Wales. He pretended to be a magician, 
and not only were the Welsh people stupid enough to believe him, but even Henry believed him too. For, making three expeditions into Wales, and being three times driven back by the wildness of the country, the bad weather, and the skill of Glendower, he thought he was defeated by the Welshman's magic arts. However, he took Lord Grey and Sir Edmund Mortimer prisoners, and allowed the relatives of Lord Grey to ransom him, but would not extend such favour to Sir Edmund Mortimer. Now, Henry Percy, called Hotspur, son of the Earl of Northumberland, who was married to Mortimer's sister, is supposed to have taken offence at this, and therefore, in conjunction with his father and some others, to have joined Owen Glendower, and risen against Henry. It is by no means clear that this was the real cause of the conspiracy, but perhaps it was made the pretext. It was formed, and was very powerful, including Scroope, Archbishop of York, and the Earl of Douglas, a powerful and brave Scottish nobleman. The King was prompt and active, and the two armies met at Shrewsbury. There were about fourteen thousand men in each. The old Earl of Northumberland being sick, the rebel forces were led by his son. The King wore plain armour to deceive the enemy, and four noblemen, with the same object, wore the royal arms. The rebel charge was so furious that every one of those gentlemen was killed, the royal standard was beaten down, and the young Prince of Wales was severely wounded in the face. But he was one of the bravest and best soldiers that ever lived, and he fought so well, and the King's troops were so encouraged by his bold example, that they rallied immediately, and cut the enemy's forces all to pieces. Hotspur was killed by an arrow in the brain, and the rout was so complete that the whole rebellion was struck down by this one blow. The Earl of Northumberland surrendered himself soon after hearing of the death of his son, and received a pardon for all his offences. There were some lingerings of rebellion yet, Owen Glendower being retired to Wales, and a preposterous story being spread among the ignorant people that King Richard was still alive. How they could have believed such nonsense it is difficult to imagine, but they certainly did suppose that the court fool of the late king, who was something like him, was he himself. So that it seemed as if, after giving so much trouble to the country in his life, he was still to trouble it after his death. This was not the worst. The young Earl of March and his brother were stolen out of Windsor Castle. Being retaken, and being found to have been spirited away by one Lady Spencer, she accused her own brother, that Earl of Rutland who was in the former conspiracy, and was now Duke of York, of being in the plot. For this he was ruined in fortune, though not put to death. And then another plot rose among the old Earl of Northumberland, some other lords, and that same Scroope, Archbishop of York, who was with the rebels before. These conspirators caused a writing to be posted on the church doors, accusing the king of a variety of crimes. But, the king being eager and vigilant to oppose them, they were all taken, and the archbishop was executed. This was the first time that a great churchman had been slain by the law in England, but the king was resolved that it should be done, and done it was. The next most remarkable event of this time was the seizure, by Henry, of the heir to the Scottish throne. 
James, a boy of nine years old. He had been put aboard ship by his father, the Scottish King Robert, to save him from the designs of his uncle, when, on his way to France, he was accidentally taken by some English cruisers. He remained a prisoner in England for nineteen years, and became in his prison a student and a famous poet. With the exception of occasional troubles with the Welsh and with the French, the rest of King Henry's reign was quiet enough. But the king was far from happy, and probably was troubled in his conscience by knowing that he had usurped the crown, and had occasioned the death of his miserable cousin. The Prince of Wales, though brave and generous, is said to have been wild and dissipated, and even to have drawn his sword on Gascoigne, the chief justice of the king's bench, because he was firm in dealing impartially with one of his dissolute companions. Upon this the chief justice is said to have ordered him immediately to prison. The Prince of Wales is said to have submitted with a good grace, and the king is said to have exclaimed, Happy is the monarch who has so just a judge, and a son so willing to obey the laws. This is all very doubtful, and so is another story, of which Shakespeare has made beautiful use, that the prince once took the crown out of his father's chamber as he was sleeping, and tried it on his own head. The king's health sank more and more, and he became subject to violent eruptions on the face, and to bad epileptic fits, and his spirits sank every day. At last, as he was praying before the shrine of St. Edward at Westminster Abbey, he was seized with a terrible fit, and was carried into the abbot's chamber, where he presently died. It had been foretold that he would die at Jerusalem, which certainly is not, and never was, Westminster. But, as the abbot's room had long been called the Jerusalem chamber, people said it was all the same thing, and were quite satisfied with the prediction. The king died on the 20th of March, 1413, in the forty-seventh year of his age, and the fourteenth of his reign. He was buried in Canterbury Cathedral. He had been twice married, and had, by his first wife, a family of four sons and two daughters. Considering his duplicity before he came to the throne, his unjust seizure of it, and, above all, his making that monstrous law for the burning of what the priests called heretics, he was a reasonably good king, as kings went. End of chapter 20